We're in the book of Philippians, going through a series called The Joy Set. This is a, about a mindset of joy. A couple of weeks ago, we began this series going through uh, the, the New Testament book. And in the last couple of weeks, we talked about how we all kind of struggle with having joy. Uh, and we talked about how joy literally can flow out from seeing the bigger picture of your life. I know even this week, struggling with some discouragement, seems like the problems are right here, and all we see is the negativity that's right in front of us. And we forget that God is bigger than our negativity. We forget that God is doing something, even behind the scenes. It's a a famous line that if you can't see his hand, you can still trust his heart. God is constantly doing something. He's working all things out together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so oftentimes we get discouraged and we let negativity kind of of control or dominate our life because we become short-sighted and we don't see the bigger picture. And, and we talked about a couple weeks ago that a lot of times it's because we're missing margin in our lives. We, we don't really have that opportunity. We don't take the time to just get along with God and just say, God, speak to me. God, show me from your word what's out of line in my life. God, I'm taking this day just to rest in your presence, to be still and know that you are God, to know you are God of my circumstances, God of my trials, God of my worries, God of my temptations, my tribulations, and the things that I wrestle with. God, you are still on the throne. You are still on the throne. Just a time to get along with God and just to think about the vision that he has for your life, the the plans and purposes he has for you, the calling he's placed on your life. And because we don't have margin in our lives, we're we're not big picture people, we're short-sighted people, we're filled with busyness, and we're not taking the time to really connect with God in a way that allows him to speak into our lives, we begin to flounder. We begin to flounder. We have this ever-pervasive just frustration in our lives, but yet we're so overwhelmed with discouragement, we have no power or desire to do anything to change it. And so we struggle. And I think we flounder ultimately because as believers in Christ, we become content with just our service on Sunday and then back to our lives on Monday, and we miss out on the assignment or the very call God has for our lives. There's a call. Did you know God has a purpose for you, specifically, individually? The purpose for the church is that we tell everyone about his son, but the purpose for you is something very specific. In the book of Ephesians, it says we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the very thing he planned for us long ago. Well, when was that? It's before he even spoke creation into existence. God knew you. God saw you. God had a plan for you and a purpose for you. And many of us struggle and we flounder because we've yet to wake up to the realization or surrender to that call on our lives. The busyness of our lives causes us to miss out on opportunities that he's put before us. And the reality is we've seen here in the book of Philippians, even just in this very first chapter, is that the reality for us as modern-day Christians in the life of this church is that we're not living life through the lens of who we are in Jesus. As citizens of heaven, this is who we are. It's not just something we get when everything is said and done. This is who we are in the here and now. We're not living according to who we are. We are living for the American dream. We're living 
for greed. We're living for personal prosperity. We're living for the things the world has said we need to have in our lives, and we are not pursuing the mission of the church. We're not living as citizens of heaven. So there's a fracture. There's, there, there's a point of tension between who we are and who God's called us to be and what we're doing and how we live in our lives. And it creates a point of frustration. It works against our joy. So for Paul the Apostle, as we read a couple weeks ago in the first chapter, he said that no matter what he was experiencing, whether they were good circumstances or bad circumstances, he was able to rejoice. He was able to have overflowing joy because he was doing the very thing God had created him to do, and that was to live for Christ. He gave up everything, even his own well-being, to live for Christ. For him, he said, to live means living for Christ, and to die would even be better, that if I died, I would go get to be with Christ, which is the ultimate reward. So if I don't get to die and be with Christ, then I'm going to do everything I can to live for Christ. He'd be willing to give up the greatest reward, which is receiving and being with Christ, for the greatest privilege, and that is living for Christ. But as we look out into our world and we even take an account for our own lives and our priorities and the things that that we have set before us, I think we could easily see in our day in this age that we as Christians in America in 2018, we don't have the same mindset for us today. We don't have the same mindset. God actually gets in the way of what we really want to do in life. God gets in the way of what we really want to pursue So rather than pursuing the kingdom and and sharing the gospel and telling and testifying what God has done in our lives, we pursue our own kingdom. We want bigger houses. We want a larger retirement. We want this. We want that. We want to make sure we have the name brands. We want the nice car. We want the vacation spot. And we work so hard to acquire these things, but yet our neighbors and those in our lives go on by without once hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so hard to find joy as a believer in this world. When things don't begin to pan out how we want, when we're not getting what we're really striving for, we get discouraged, we get frustrated because we're living for the very things that God said we need to surrender as a citizen of heaven. And just like Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians here in this book, we too have been left alive. Think about that. Think, why did God not call you home the minute you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Think about it. Why would he not just take you to heaven the moment you said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I place my hope and trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. Be my Lord and Savior. And the moment the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're saved and you're now uh, prepared for a home in heaven, why does he not call you home? It's because he has a job for you. He has a purpose for you. He has a call for your life. You're special to him. And he has some very specific things that he's prepared for you to do. And so recognizing that for us too, just like Paul, there's much ahead of us. There's much left for us to accomplish in the world. And that is the reason why God has left us alive. We're going to begin our reading in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, and really set the stage for what we're talking about today. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 
Paul writes this to the church of Philippi. He says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And we are in this struggle together. Somebody say together today. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past. And you know that I am still in the midst of that struggle. I'm still in the midst of it. We're in this struggle together. And Paul, he's speaking of this undeserved privilege. He also writes about this in the book of Romans, talking about that salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing anyone in here has done to earn it or deserve it. Praise God that it is a free gift. Praise the Lord that he saw fit to offer this of his own accord. Salvation is given freely by nothing more than the very grace of God. This is not something any of us deserve. It's something we actually do not deserve. And in this moment, as he's talking about salvation and this privilege of knowing Christ, we, we, we say this in the church. If you've not grown up in the church, this might be foreign to you. But if, if you've been in church your whole life, you might have heard this common phrase. And it's this. It's that Jesus has saved you from your, fill that in. What is that? Jesus has saved you from your sins. Right? We use that to kind of describe salvation. Now, in this moment, just take a second and think about what that actually means. What has Jesus saved you from? What has God forgiven you for? Where would you be today if it were not for Christ? Maybe you're here today and you're looking for Jesus. You know there's something else out there, but you've yet to really discover the truth, and you're, you're looking for, for Jesus and what he could do in your life. Think about where you would be if you had trusted in Christ up until this point, if you were in a relationship with him. Those of you that know the Lord, think about it. Think about where you would be. Think about the sins that he has forgiven you for, not just in the past, but the things you struggle for with even now. Think about it. He has saved you from your sins. It is a privilege to know the Lord. It is an honor to know the Lord. And Paul is not only telling us it is a privilege to know Jesus, it is also a privilege to suffer for him. You see, suffering comes in many different forms. Giving up the American dream can often feel like suffering. To walk in the generosity of his love, we give up what we want in order to live out his love. Laying down treasures on earth so we can acquire treasures in heaven. To surrender safety and comfort in order to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Suffering can come in many forms. But nonetheless, suffering for Christ is a privilege. Because we only get to suffer for him because of the privilege of knowing him. If we did not know Christ, we would not be able to suffer for him. And though God is a good God, he's a good father who gives good gifts to his children, God gives us more than we deserve. Oftentimes my wife and I will talk about, especially when we're feeling sorry for ourselves because we can't do something that we want, we stop to think about all the blessings we have and we're like, man, God's really given us a lot of stuff. He gives, he's given us some good things. A lot of things we don't even deserve gives us opportunities and privileges we don't often 
deserve or think about. God is a good God. But even though God is a good God, we live in a world that's in the midst of a spiritual battle. We are wrestling against a spiritual enemy who is trying ever increasingly every day to thwart the good plans God has for you. I heard it said this past week that that Satan doesn't really have plans. Now, Satan doesn't have plans. We all know the verse. It's very common. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. God is telling this or, or, or proclaiming this over the nation of Israel uh, just before they go into a, really a 70-year uh, captivity in Babylon. He's saying, look, you're going to go through some stuff, but I know what's coming. I know the plans I have for you. It is something good. Hang in there. Stay faithful. It's a very powerful verse that encourages encourages us, especially when we're going through hardship. But God has plans for us. He has a purpose for our lives. Satan doesn't have plans. The Bible tells us he has schemes. And he's scheming to wreck the plans that God actually has for you. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes but not for to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all Satan wants to do. He wants to wreck the plans that God has for your life. He wants to wreck the good things that God has prepared for you. So enters hardship, struggle, and suffering. Now the Holy Spirit through Paul in this book of Philippians, he's weaving a narrative, this guide to a joy-filled life. And to really to have the mind of a joy-filled person, what we're calling a, a joy set. And so he sets the stage here, Paul is, by saying that to know Christ and suffering for him is a privilege, which is a concept that many of us take for granted. But we need to let that soak in as we transition now into chapter 2, as we look at what Paul begins to write, thinking truly about the privilege and honor that it is to know Christ and to suffer for him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, here's what Paul says. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Now, Paul, he's asking these rhetorical questions, and he's doing this to really get the readers of this letter, the the believers at the church of Philippi, to really think deeply for a moment. Think about Paul's situation. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Someone shout it out. Prison, from jail. He's in jail. He is presently suffering for Christ. And so he's asking these questions. Is there any encouragement belonging to Christ? And you would say, church? Yes, there is, right? Belonging to Christ is really encouraging. I'm not what I once was. I'm a new creation, right? The Spirit of God lives within me. There's a joy. There's a hope. There's, there's an encouragement to my soul that I've been forgiven and set free, and I'm made clean. There is a joy that is uh, an encouragement that is belonging to Christ. I have a home in heaven that's waiting for me. I have a Savior that one day is going to come down from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and I'm going to watch the dead in Christ rise if I'm still alive. And, then, and at that point, I'm going to fly up there in heaven too, and I'm going to be with my Savior forever and forever, never to know sin, never to know pain, never to know sickness or death ever again. You better believe there's encouragement in belonging to Christ. You better believe it. Any comfort from his love? What do you say, church? Is there comfort in being loved by God? Is there any fellowship together in his spirit? 
In other words, he's saying, think about this. Y'all, I put the Southern in there for, for emphasis. Think about it, y'all. Is this available in Christ? Is there encouragement in hardship? Is there comfort in struggle? Is there fellowship and partnership through the Holy Spirit? Are we communing together when we join for worship? Are we communing together in the presence and power and experiencing God's might in our services? If the answer is yes, then what are we doing if we're not coming together? If this is available, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, then why are we not coming together? What are we doing if we're not striving with one another and contending with one another for the faith? If we're not encouraging each other to be proclaimers of the gospel and evangelists in our neighborhoods, our sphere of influence? What are we doing if we're not encouraging each other to live faithful before God, pure and spotless lives, and to be faithful to the call that he's placed on us? What are we doing? Because all of these are available in Christ Jesus. And since all of these are available in Christ Jesus, in the second verse of chapter 2, here's what he says. He says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Paul here is saying that if we have a right mind, it says that knowing Christ and suffering for him is a privilege, then we will increase his joy. We will increase the joy that could be experienced ultimately if he is able to see unity in this church. There is joy that comes when a church is unified in purpose and in mission. I don't know if you know this, but uh, church people from time to time tend to disagree with one another. I don't know if you knew that. that there's disagreements that happen over big things, small things. Um, and what happens when these disagreements, when they come out of unity with one another, is the ministry begins to suffer. Things begin to happen, and, and there's stresses, there's problems, there's trials, and there's hardship. So here Paul, he's wanting to redirect and point us to the important things and, and to appoint the things we have in fellowship with Christ together. Because when problems happen, disunity happens, then the outfall or fallout also begins to take its toll. And so he's encouraging the church to come together. Paul stresses the importance of unity also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager also means to be diligent, to be unrelenting in your pursuit of unity. Because right after verse 3 in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, as we are eager to pursue unity, we need to recognize that there is only one Lord, there is only one faith, there is only one baptism and one call to the glory of God the Father. There is one thing that binds us together. There is one ministry, one mission, one purpose. Unity in the church, unity among believers is vitally important for the health of any church because a fractured church is a weakened church. Unity is important. But not only is unity in a body important, it is also something that's very powerful. John chapter 17, verse 23, this is Jesus praying to the Father, and he says, I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know 
that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Meditate on that for just a second. This is the Lord. He's praying to the Father. He says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. And this is the part that gets me. It says that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That is a powerful verse. That is a powerful verse. Because Jesus is saying that if the assembly of Christ, the people of God, the church, if the church was in unity, the world would have the evidence it needed to know that he came from the Father. If the church was in unity, there'd be no question in the world whether or not Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. There'd be no question in the world because they would see a a powerful movement moving together in the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with signs and wonders being confirmed in the message of the kingdom of God. The world would have its evidence. Think about people you know in your life, those you love, in your family, at workplace, the people you know that are doubting God and doubt his existence and don't know about this faith thing. If the church was united, they would have what they needed to know that Jesus is the answer. The world is continuously scanning the cosmos through scientific endeavors, looking for evidence of God. But all they need to do is look at the church when it's in unity. That's powerful. That is powerful. No wonder why Paul says, be eager to strive for unity. Unity is not only important, it is not only powerful. Unity also comes with a blessing. Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, How wonderful and pleasant is it when the brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and ran down his beard onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew of Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Unity brings refreshment. It brings blessing. It cultivates an environment where people can flourish and grow and be encouraged. But when unity is broken, it breaks all sorts of things. It brings all sorts of problems. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, Peter is admonishing the church, and he's telling husbands, guys, you need to live in an understanding way with your wives, because if you don't, your prayers could be hindered. He's like, live in such a way that you're cultivating unity in your relationship, because if you're not, your prayers could be hindered. Your fellowship with God and the ability to see God move in your life is going to be stifled in your life. That's strong, because if we know that prayer can be hindered in a family because of disunity, how much more can the work of God, the power of God, and the message of God be broken, be dulled, or stifled in the church? Unity brings a blessing, but each and every one of us are charged with guarding it, protecting it. Unity is important, it's powerful, it's a blessing, and it can cause people to experience joy. And if we're living as citizens of heaven, this is where joy will be found, in the unity of the brotherhood. Now, there's a misconception that unity also requires uniformity or sameness. This is where uh, 
Everyone has to look the same, be the same, like the same things. Um, In unity, we can disagree on things but still have love and respect for one another because we're all bought into the central mission and vision and we're working together. We don't have to be in 100% agreement, but we are in agreement on what God is doing and where we're going. We are in agreement on what uh, the main focus and priority is. We are united in our love, in our fellowship through the Holy Spirit. When we're in unity, we can have a difference of an opinion, and it won't divide us because we recognize we are working together for the culmination of a bigger story. But when we are fighting for uniformity, which means sameness, everyone is the same, rather than unity, this is where offenses happen. This is where people become offended and, and strife begins to rise up because people no longer feel loved or accepted because everyone is needing to be the same or in every way. I uh, used to minister at a, at a church in Missouri. Um, was one of my, actually was my first ministry position and I was a worship leader there and uh, was uh, working with a, a pastor and I was kind of, I'm not new to the church because I grew up in the church and I saw ministry from my parents' point of view, but this was the first time being on staff anywhere. And if you know my story, this was like a big leap of faith for me because I was in major rebellion. I didn't want to go into ministry, but, but God uh, turned my heart and began to work us through this path. And here at, at the church, things were going well for a while, but after a time, it started to experience some trouble. And, and during that time, God called the pastor to, uh, to go elsewhere and then laid it on my heart to go elsewhere. And I can remember that as the dysfunction was happening in this church, I was called into the office to speak with uh, the head of the deacon board at that time because they had had a meeting about what they were going to do to help unify the church. And, uh, and try to recoup from the, the strife and the dysfunction that was happening. And so as I was meeting with this guy, he was asking me if I was planning on staying and, and would be willing to continue to lead worship. And I let him know that we were, we were going elsewhere and, uh, and he got it already kind of rerouted our direction. He was like, okay. And uh, after I got out of that meeting, I saw all the other staff members I had worked with. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, that all the guys were there, not just me. And then uh, I was hanging out and talking with them, and they one by one got called into the office. And one by one came out and said, I just got fired. I just got fired. I just got fired. And I was like, what's going on here? You know, the, the, they said, yeah, they changed the locks, and they fired all the staff. And, and it's because the staff that was still there was still in support of the vision of the previous pastor. So they wanted to get rid of everybody that thought that way and, and had that vision so that they could then bring everybody under the new vision of the church or what they thought was the vision of the church. And their, their plan to do that was really to create division and, and hurt people and, and, and fire them and, and put their families in hardship rather than cultivate the Spirit of God and ask for revival and, and for healing through the Holy Spirit. There is a misconception between unity and uniformity. Unity doesn't mean everyone is the same. Unity means everyone is in support of the vision. It means we are connected with our love for one another, with our vision of what God is doing, and the ultimate call that he's placed in our life to reach our community. And Paul's hope here, and I believe the core of Jesus' prayer, is that we would be in unity. Not that we're fighting for what we want or what we desire, but we're fighting for what God wants and what he desires. And, and really, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, he gives us four things to strive for in our quest for unity as a church. And these are things that we each need to take as responsibility on ourselves to pursue in our own lives. 
There are four things that we're to, uh, to be in quest for, to strive for, so that our joy together as a church may be in full as we labor together for the cause of Christ. And I think when you read this in the New Living Translation, you kind of miss it because it, it seems a little redundant. So we're going to read uh, Philippians 2.2 in the English Standard Version because we'll begin to see the separation of these items in the Scripture. And you, if you're taking notes in your worship guide, you can write these four things down. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this to the church. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance and of one mind. So there are four things here. And again, we can see the call for unity just reading off of the scripture here. But pay attention to what he's specifically saying. That we should be of, number one, the same mind. Number two, we should have the same love. Number three, be in full accord. And number four, be of one mind. And it kind of seems like number one and number four are the same. But there's a little, a little difference. Again, from the first glance, you know, we can see that he's talking about unity. But when you dig a little deeper into the original language, into the Greek in, in which these letters were written, you can see something a little more significant begin to shine through. The word for same, as we look at the same mind, this word for same in the, the Greek language is the word autos or autos. That's a popular word in the Michigan area, especially around GM and Ford, autos or autos. Uh, it can be translated in the English word as the word same, and it's done so at least 80 times in the New Testament. So the word same here, autos, is, is the way they translated it. But the word same in the English is not the primary translation for this word. It was only translated as the word same 80 different times. It is translated 1,952 times in the New Testament as the word his. So here we have same, but the primary translation is the word his. And so what I'm seeing here in the original language is Paul is encouraging this church to be in unity is that it is not just the same mind, but it is his mind. It is his mind. Well, who is his? That's God. To be unified in his mind. The word, the word mind is the word phroneo, and it can also be translated as think or understanding. He's saying be united in his understanding, his way of thinking, his mind. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says through the prophet, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far above anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And far too often, disagreement and disunity come in a church, in a marriage, in a friendship, in a partnership, because we are thinking with our fleshly minds rather than the mind of God. We're not thinking on the level of God. We're not renewing our minds daily, putting our sinful nature to, to death, our selfishness to death, thinking with the mind of God and his picture of the world and his redemptive plan of the world. We are thinking with just what is in front of us in the here and now. We need to be united in pursuing the very mind of God. And number two, we have the word, or the translation is the same, love, but the word for love is the word agape. This is God's kind of love. So again, we can replace the word same with his, and I believe Paul is saying that this is his love. God's love is selfless love. 
It's sacrificial love. It's giving without uh, requiring anything in return kind of love. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 13, he says, there is no greater love than this, than one who would lay his own life down for his friends. There's no greater agape than one would lay down his own life for his friends. There's no greater love than this. John 13, 35, Jesus says, your agape for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your sacrifice, you're willing to serve and not be served. You're willing to give up your own rights and not proclaim your rights. This is what is going to prove to the world you are my disciples. God's love or his love does not equal like. Jesus didn't say, if you like one another, you will prove to the world that you are my disciples. No, he said, if you love one another, if you agape one another. Agape is God's kind of love. It is his love. We need to pursue having God's thoughts. We need to pursue having God's love. And number three, we need to pursue being of one accord. This phrase, one accord, is really made up of two different words. The word sin, which means together with, that's S-Y-N. It's together with, and the word psychos, which means soul or inner self-life. It's the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's the, the center of all your feelings, desires, and affections. This is your, your mental self. And here we're to be in one accord. This is, in essence, one in purpose and in affection. He's saying, I'm praying that the church would be one, that our desires would be one. We'd have one desire. We'd want the same thing. And as believers in Christ, citizens of heaven, pursuing for unity, the one thing that our desire should be is that we should live a Christ-centered life, a spirit-led, and be kingdom-focused. That we should be Christ-centered, spirit-led, and kingdom-focused. It is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. When you wake up and put your kids, uh, get them ready for school, it's about Jesus. When you go to work and you punch in, it's about Jesus. When you talk to your neighbors and your coworkers and the people in your family, it's about Jesus. Everything that we do is Christ-centered, and then it should be spirit-led. We live and operate and work through the power of the Spirit. He teaches us the truth. He empowers us for ministry. He's guiding our lives, and he's uniting us together in the fellowship. And we should be kingdom-focused. It's about his kingdom, not ours. It's about his fingerprint in the world and not ours. We are to be Christ-centered, spirit-led, and kingdom-focused. But far too often, we are emotionally driven people and not spirit-led people. We make decisions based on our emotions. We react based on our emotions. And we aren't thinking with God's thoughts. We're thinking with our flesh. We are thinking about what's pleasing and perfect in our eyes, not what's pleasing and perfect in the Father's eyes. We're looking for what is comfortable and not what is hard and honorable. As followers of Christ, we are to be living to make Jesus famous. We should yearn to overflow in the spirit that his presence would be confirmed through signs and wonders and miracles of all kinds. We should stand in awe of his glory when we gather for worship. We should be pursuing God in every sphere of influence spectrum of our lives, no matter what our assignment is from the Lord, as we live to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to advance the kingdom of God here in this world. Number four, 
He says, be of one mind. The word one is the word has, and the, one, the word one is phroneo. This is one thinking. This is one mind. This is unity in its fullest. Unity that comes from full surrender. This is all in devotion to our king. This is working together with one vision and one direction. And Paul is saying, he's telling us that if we pursue this, we pursue his mind, his love, be in one accord with one mind together, there will be joy because we'll be in unity. And what works against this being true or being experienced by the church is what Paul addresses next in, in verse 3 and 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is the opposite of what he just told us. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others to be more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. God's thoughts are not selfish or selfishly motivated. God's love is sacrificial and unconditional. And if we're united in our affections and our desires to be Christ-centered, spirit-led, and kingdom-focused, we won't just be looking out for our own interests, but we'll be working together in unity toward the bigger picture, experiencing a joy that comes from knowing and serving the Lord. So as we close today, I want to ask you a question. Are you pursuing his mind? Are you striving every day to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Are you pursuing having his thoughts, thinking like God thinks? Are you in the word, studying, meditating, and praying the truth of God? Are you coming into agreement with what the word of God says, rejecting the lies of the enemy so you're not falling prey to his evil schemes because the devil has schemes and he's coming for you? Now, how do we stand against those schemes? Well, we put on the armor of God. We wield the truth. We stand in faith. We renew our minds. Does your life agree with the word? Does your mindset agree with the word? Do you have God's thoughts? Are you walking in his love? Are you selflessly sacrificing for the good of others? This is a tough one. Jesus gave it all. He gave it all. And I believe if he could, he'd probably do it again. And I'm convicted in my own heart about the level of my love when I look at who Christ is and what he's done for me. Are your affections set on things above? Is your primary focus the kingdom of God? Or is it your own personal kingdom? Is your life Christ-centered? Are you being led of the Spirit? Are you chasing the blessing of unity together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? See, I echo Paul's words today that our joy would be complete if we would come together in unity and strive diligently and passionately for these things and that we would recognize that our labor would not be in vain. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for just a moment. As we contemplate our own lives according to the word of God, as we look at Paul and his encouragement to the church, but his, his pathway to, to joy in the church and ministry in the church and in the lives of the believers. The pathway is in unity. The blessing of unity begins with unity in the Son of God. 
The blessing of unity begins with being unified with the Son of God. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there been a time in your life where you've called out to God and said, God, forgive me of my sins. I've been messing some stuff up. My life's a wreck. But I know that you love me. I know that you'll forgive me if I ask. So please forgive me of my sins. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I declare him as my Lord and Savior. Are you in unity with the Son of God? Do you have a relationship with him? The next, are you living in unity with the word of God? Are you turning away from your sin and pursuing a life devoted to Christ? In, even in the most insignificant ways. I was reminded this week of how important it is to be in unity with the Word of God, to be in unity with the Christ, to be in unity with His Word. The smallest of doors can open up the largest of consequences. Are you in unity with the Holy Spirit of God? Jesus said that when the Spirit of God comes, that he would baptize you in his power, that you'd be filled with power to be his witness. Are you filled with the Spirit of God? Are you walking in the Spirit? Paul said that the kingdom of God is not a lot of talk, but it's by walking by the power of God. Is the power of God evidenced in your life? Do you see the power of God at work in your life? Is the evidence that the Spirit is in you in your life? Are you seeking the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel, the whole world was united in one language. They sinned a great sin before God, and God confounded the languages. He separated the languages so that men couldn't continue in their wickedness. Babel brought disunity into the world. But when God came on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, unity was once again restored. But we are a one people again through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God brings unity. He brings people together. He doesn't drive people away. Are you in unity with the Holy Spirit? See, when we have unity with the Son of God and we have unity with the Word of God and we have unity in the Spirit of God, unity will come to the church. And this will become a place where people thrive. This will be a place where people flourish. This will be a place where there is encouragement and joy, where those who walk in with tears walk away with laughter. This will be a place where the Spirit of God is in force. People are receiving healing. People are receiving a word from God to encourage their souls. This will be a place that is filled with the power and presence of God. So for the next few moments, I just invite us to pray to seek the Lord, to really ask, God, where is my heart? Where have I been out of unity with you? Where am I out of unity with your church? Where am I out of unity with your word? Where am I out of unity with your spirit? And God, call me back. Call me back. Bring me in. Make me teachable. Make me moldable. Make me a person who is diligently pursuing the unity that I can have in you. So there's encouragement in belonging to Christ. There is comfort in your love. There is partnership in the Holy Spirit. God, we long for that here at Vertical Life Church. We long for there to be a presence and a power of unity, that we'd be of one mind, one heart, one affection, and one purpose, God, that we would have your love, your thoughts, God, that we'd be soul-tied together, united in spirit, 
that our minds would be set on the kingdom of God. God, we look towards Easter right now. God, we look towards Easter. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to be inviting people to take that step of faith and come to new life in Jesus. God, I pray that each and every one of us, our hearts would burn with a desire to see somebody we know come to faith. God, that we would do everything we can to see them come and be a part of Vertical Life Church on that Sunday, God. And God, when people are here, when they come from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, that your spirit would be in power right now in the name of Jesus, God. Your spirit would fall. It would break hard hearts, God. That they would see the church in such unity, Lord, that they would have the evidence to know that you are the true one. You are the son of God. You are the savior, the Messiah, and new life can be found in you. God, we just speak against the schemes of the enemy. And I just ask you, God, to bring those into the light, that you'd expose those now in the name of Jesus. And as we go into a time of response, God, that we would have no fear, but that we would follow you and commit and surrender in the name of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. We're going to sing again. We're going to move into a time of response. If God has laid something on your heart to speak, to encourage the church, we have the microphone down here as well as we'll be down here for prayer. If there is something that you're dealing with, you need healing, you need encouragement, you're wrestling with something, you have a decision that you need to make, you need wisdom from God, come on down. We'll pray and we'll see God work in this place.